Well, for our time in God's Word this morning, you can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. About 500 years ago, North and South America were filled with Native Americans. Scholars estimate there may be about 50 million at that time. But as you know, most would not survive long after contact with the Europeans. That's because the majority died from disease. They had no immunity to diseases like smallpox. But there's another major factor that led to their decline. It was their disunity. As the Europeans colonized the Americas, the natives failed to repel them, and they could have. They vastly outnumbered the natives if they just banded together. They could have easily pushed the Europeans out of the continent. That never happened because they could not unify. Instead, the Europeans found hundreds of, of tribes too busy fighting among themselves, and that made their land easy picking. In fact, some tribes would even ally with the Europeans against rival tribes. This infighting blinded them to the bigger threat, and we all know the result. They were essentially wiped out. And though it's tragic for the Native Americans, there's a lesson to be learned here because, in a way, history is repeating itself in the church. We face around us an increasingly hostile and dark culture. The Lord calls us to be salt and light to the world, a distinct witness But in a way, the world seeks to colonize the church and put its light out. And many Christians have already been taken captive through philosophy and empty deception, as Colossians 2 would warn. This is a time when the church needs a unified response. The problem is that the churches can be a lot like tribes, their own little tribe. And we've let too many secondary issues distract us from our real mission and the real threats we face. I mean, for one, you have a lot of tribal infighting. That's where some Christians spend all their time fighting against other Christians instead of, for example, evangelizing the lost. In addition, there's a lot of strife within a tribe where local churches can become easily divided as people focus more on issues of personal preference than the Lord's call, the Lord's mission for the church. And don't get me wrong, sometimes division is necessary. There is a time to separate from false brethren. We can't possibly unite with those who deny the gospel, who deny Christ or the truth. But, I mean, let's face it. When you look at what divides local churches, it's usually not gospel issues. Most times it's preference issues or interpersonal issues, methodology issues. Secondary issues get elevated to first importance. You have immature or prideful Christians who will They'll choose the wrong hills to die on, and the enemy finds an easy path to divide and conquer. But instead, we we know the church is called to come together in Christ, the head, the Savior. He is the glue that holds the body together. Your identity must be in Christ. Your mission must be driven by Christ. He's the foundation for our unity, something we must never forget or forsake. And I can say that a spirit of humility is required to get there. Humility is, I think, the chief virtue for the believer. And by humility, I don't mean being a pushover, a doormat, where you're always just capitulating to keep the peace and artificial unity. No, humility is not about being weak-willed. In fact, the church needs men and leaders who are strong-willed. The kicker, though, is you must not be self-willed. 
You know, be strong-willed. Yes, keep your strong will. Use it to defend the truth. Stand up for what is right. Just make sure your strong will is entirely in submission to Christ and his will, his agenda, and you'll be fine. But when, when people are dominated by self-will, like my way, then you've got trouble. That stems from pride. That will quickly divide a church. This is why, for example, elders are required to be not self-will, Titus 1.7. Meanwhile, false teachers, they're always described as what? Self-will, 2 Peter 2.10. Self-will comes from this deep-seated pride. It's a my way or the highway mentality. And it really spells trouble. Instead of the church, we need to find unity through humility from the top down, from Christ the head to the church leaders to the body, together as one, serving just the Lord's will. That's how we reap the benefits of peace in the body and, and joy. None of this is easy because we're still sinners and sin naturally divides. And so we need to be exhorted in this area often. I mean, this was literally one of the first issues the first churches faced. Like all the very first churches were not immune to division. And this explains why unity is, is a, a central theme to most of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament. I mean, as soon as these new churches were formed, he's basically writing to them, exhorting them to a biblical unity. If they were going to grow and have a witness, they had to be one in Christ. The Roman church needed it. The Ephesian church needed it. The Colossian church needed it. The Corinthian church definitely needed it. And Paul exhorts them all the time in his letters. He tells them, be of the same mind. Show tolerance for one another in love. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Bear with one another. And then, for example, Colossians 3.14 says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I mean, they needed these frequent exhortations and reminders because, well, they were prone to self-will, which only divides, and so are we. I mean, we have unity in Christ by the Spirit. We have it, but we're called to preserve it and pursue it. And there's something even good churches need to work on. And that gets us to Philippians, because the Philippian church was an excellent church, They were not plagued with problems like the Corinthian church. But they too needed to be exhorted on unity. Philippian church should not have major doctrinal problems. Paul doesn't have to correct them on serious issues like the Corinthians or like the Galatians. And you can tell this church was dearly beloved to Paul. He has them in his heart. But perhaps this is why he was all the more troubled to hear of their growing division fissures were forming among them, but but over the wrong things. Self-will and interpersonal conflict were spoiling their growth and gospel witness. And so Paul writes to exhort them to unity. And it's, it's a message we need to take to heart just as much today. So the text I want us to consider this morning is Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. It's one of my favorite in all the New Testament. Look, so much so I preached it last week. Last week, I was invited to speak at the church plant of our former associate pastor up in Spokane, Washington, and they're a one-year-old church plant, and I I knew meditating on what message to bring to them, unity is essential. If they don't come together in Christ as one, 
They're well on their way, but if they don't solidify unity, they're not going to be around in five years. For, for all the first church plants, Paul knows unity was of central importance, and so I felt compelled to bring them this message. But even further reflecting, I mean, this message on unity isn't just relevant for church plants. I'm just thinking back past year and a half, since the beginning of COVID, in my opinion, never has the church been assaulted with so many secondary issues, like non-gospel secondary issues. It's been a, a tidal wave. And for churches who've not been truly unified in Christ and the gospel and truth, and cracks in the armor have shown. You add in all the political issues and social issues, this is just a time, a season in the world and in the church rife with division and I think there's more to come. Now, I'm very thankful. I think our church has been strongly unified in Christ, in the truth. We, we know what we believe throughout all this time. But look, even good churches can be taken down by internal conflict if they're not vigilant. That was the Philippians. They were like a rock-solid church, but internal division was starting to take its toll. All this goes to say that there's really never a time where we are beyond the need for a reminder to biblical unity. And I also figured there's never going to be a time when this sermon is, and this, this text is as fresh in my mind, since I just preached it last week. And so I thought I would take us through it as well, one week detour from the Gospel of Matthew. And like I said, it's one of my favorites. I love preaching on this passage. So Philippians 2, 3 through 4 is where we're going. Before we get there, I want to take another minute, minute or two to set up the context. You know, Philippians 1, it's an extremely long introduction. And then Paul finally gets to the first command, the first admonition at the end of chapter 1. It's found in verse 27. And that's really the theme verse for the letter, the main thrust for the letter. He tells them, verse 27, chapter 1, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Very similar to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 that we read this morning. See, these were people, they knew Christ, that they already believed the gospel. And now he's just telling them like, okay, so live it out. You must walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You can see how Paul has a specific end in mind though, namely unity. He wants to see them standing firm in one spirit, and with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's it. That's the bullseye. That's the target for a local church. We, are, we have a common identity in Christ and a common mission. We're, we're all marching to the same goal. You know, back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul already thanked God for the Philippian church because they were his gospel partners. This was not some church under Paul, beneath Paul. He viewed them by his side. That they're side by side, just ministering for the faith of the gospel. But that ministry was being threatened by their disunity. If, if this church unraveled, then, then their gospel witness would unravel. I'm sure you've seen nylon ropes today. They're, they're incredibly strong. If you ever look closely at a nylon rope, you'll see they're formed by weaving together three to five smaller nylon ropes you look at those, they're individually made by weaving together you know, dozens of nylon threads. 
you ever unraveled it to just a single thread, it, it could barely hold anything. It's only when they're woven together that they become extra strong. And that's pretty much like the church. The church's strength in witness and worship comes when we're tightly woven together as one in Christ. But unfortunately, all too many churches unravel from the inside out. The Philippian church was facing some external pressure. I mean, they had outside opponents. Paul addresses them in verse 28 of chapter 1. I mean, their opponents, it's true, they might persecute them. They might cause them to suffer like they did for Paul. In case it, you forgot, it's been a while, but don't forget that Paul writes Philippians from his first Roman imprisonment. But that's not that big of a deal. God can advance the gospel even through suffering, even through imprisonment, as Paul testifies in Philippians chapter 1. And suffering is not the real problem here. Suffering is not the real threat. That The real threat is this church just scattering and giving up because they're scared. And so Paul writes at the end of chapter 1 to tell them, to encourage them, like, don't let them tear you apart. He first addresses their external threats at the end of chapter 1. But again, that's not their biggest threat. Their biggest threat is not external, but internal. Internal division will far sooner take them out of the gospel race. And so Paul spends much more time addressing that in chapter 2. Again, this was a good and healthy church, but little cracks were forming in the foundation. And catch a glimpse of it later in chapter 4. You can look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Just as a preview, it says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Then verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I mean, clearly some conflict was brewing in the church between these two prominent women. And most likely everyone else was taking sides. We don't know the exact nature of this conflict, but it was not theological. This was personal. Like many churches today, issues of personal preference were at the forefront, which they can merit some contention, but they don't merit division. But when selfishness plus pride mix together and prevail, I mean, you've got a surefire recipe for division. You have to deal with cracks like this before they grow. You know, once my old truck, I, I got a little crack in the windshield. Really, it was a chip, like a pebble, chipped the windshield. Extremely annoying, but I mean, it's just a chip, so I ignored it. A little while later, that chip turned into a little crack. Still just a very small crack. Still, to me, very annoying, but I just ignored it. But you fast forward a couple years, that crack now covered half the windshield, and I could no longer ignore it. I had to replace the whole thing. It was like a $500 fix. could have been a $5 fix if I just dealt with it right away. And conflict in local churches is not that different. But all this goes to say here in chapter 2, Paul is going to hit them with a, like a broadside blast of exhortation on unity 
because they needed to hear it. And so do we. Now, chapter 2, verse 1, he starts with the prerequisites of unity. The prerequisites of unity, he says in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. These are like four legs of a table. These are the pillars on which a church's unity rests. The thing is, the church already has these requirements. We've already met these prerequisites. These are if statements, but in the Greek, they're known as first-class conditional statements, which just means that, that they're assumed to be true. You could just as easily translate these as since. Since you have these things, that they're, they're already assumed to be in place. Because in salvation, we already have the foundation for unity. You'll notice Paul doesn't say, if y'all look the same, if y'all speak the same language, if y'all have the same interests, if y'all like the same musical worship style, if y'all have the same personal preferences, then pursue unity. Like our unity is not external or superficial. It's driven purely by our common salvation and faith in Christ. If you're in Christ by a true saving faith, you literally have no excuse to not pursue unity in the church. And so with this in mind, Paul next in verse 2 paints the picture of unity. And this is what unity in the church should look like. Verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You may say that the table of unity has four legs. It also has four sides. And these four pictures show us what unity should look like in the church. Now, this is not our verse for today. We're not going to spend time unpacking this, but it really centers on being united around a servant's mindset. The single-minded purpose. We're here to serve the Lord and one another, not self. That The picture you get of unity in the local church is, is a bunch of believers driven, not by self-will, but by the Lord's will. And seeking not just their own interests, but the interests of others. In love and by the Spirit, their arms are interlocked. They're marching in step. The same purpose that purpose is to exalt God by edifying believers and evangelizing the lost. And this is the mission to which we're called to pursue. It can only be achieved by unity, and that's why we are frequently exhorted to unity. Like we read in Ephesians 4, we have unity in the Spirit, but now we must preserve it and promote it, pursue it. And this is what Paul emphasizes next in verses 3 through 4 which is our text for this morning. I know it's a long introduction, but since this is a one-off sermon, it was necessary to, to transplant you into the soil of Philippians 2 for a day. But after giving us the prerequisites of unity and the picture of unity, verse 3 and 4, Paul shows us the pursuit of unity. This is where we're going to hone in on. Read verse 3 with me. He says next, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. From this little pair of verses, we find three essential practices of unity. And so we're going to spend our time on. If, if you as an individual Christian, and if all of us collectively as a local church could just embody these three practices, that there's really no telling how the Lord could use us to, to reach this community, to reach the lost, to grow as a body. We need to put on these three essential practices. So let's, let's consider them together. They're incredibly simple. There's nothing complicated about this. The only hard thing is just doing them. But first, deny self. The first practice to pursue unity, just deny self. Verse 3. He starts by saying, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. He starts off by describing our pursuit of unity negatively, that which we must avoid or put off. This is what kills unity. And it is, first, selfishness. Selfishness is always at the root of division. Just think of any conflict you have had in your family or in a church, and almost certainly some selfishness was involved. We are all selfish creatures. We have wants and desires. And when our wants and desires run up against someone else's wants and desires, and no one's going to budge... Conflict results, and thereafter, usually division. Now, sometimes this conflict and division are unavoidable. Again, when someone is denying the gospel or denying the Lord, we cannot move. But be reminded that that's not what the Philippians were up against. They were being plagued by just purely selfish interests. If that's the case, the solution is going to involve some denying of self. He says in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. Your translation might read selfish ambition. This word for selfishness is erethea, and it was originally used to refer to day laborers. In the ancient world, most workers were day laborers. And it's kind of a problem that there's just more workers than jobs. And so if you wanted to work for the day, which usually meant to eat for the day, You had to be selfish. You had to look out for number one. Just just think, I mean, if if there's one job opening for the day and there's 10 workers showing up, I mean, if you want that job, you've got to be cutthroat selfish. And over time, this word, erethea, it came to refer to just people who were cutthroat selfish. This is selfish ambition. It's the desire to get ahead, even at the expense of others. People like this still exist today. They view other people as a means to an end or an obstacle to overcome. And unity for such people is, by definition, impossible. And sadly, this attitude is not limited to the secular world. Believe it or not, I'm sure it's like a surprise to you, but selfish ambition and selfishness can be found in the church. That's because the church is filled with sinners who still possess their sinful flesh. We are, that flesh is inherently selfish. And so if you're not denying self, well, conflict will eventually result. In fact, you can have Christians who, they're doing good things. They're doing good ministry, but for selfish gain, 
it can still cause division. This likewise was what Paul was experiencing in Rome. He says back in chapter 1, Philippians 1.17, he mentions how some men were proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition. Same word. He says, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. He's there in prison in Rome. You have other Christians there. They're preaching the true gospel, but for selfish gain. They saw the power vacuum that resulted where the great apostle Paul is now in jail. And so it's their moment to take some of his prestige for themselves. They're just in it for themselves. They're trying to make a name for themselves. And and the point Paul is making is that unity is impossible if Christians are just in it for themselves. If they're doing what they do, even good things just for themselves, they're trying to build their name, their glory, their kingdom. Selfishness and rivalry are guaranteed to destroy unity. God will never bless Christians who are consumed, not with God's will or God's glory, but their own. Like James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Nothing good comes from this type of selfish ambition. And so first, the first negative attitude to avoid, the first put off is selfishness. There's a second in verse three, if you see it again. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This word literally means vainglory. You could call it a cheap pride. And if you're forgetting what conceit means, just think of the word conceited. It speaks of the person who thinks of themselves too highly more than they should. It refers to the person who has an excessively high opinion of self. This is the person who, who genuinely believes they are better than others and their interests should be served by others. Now, of course, for, for most people, such conceit is grossly misplaced. Like the president gets to feel like he's the most powerful person in the world because he is. You, not so much. But that doesn't stop people from acting like they are the most important person in the world. And that's why this is called an empty conceit or a vain glory. There, there's nothing there. These people are like balloons. The bigger they get on the outside, the more empty they are on the inside. And what's really dangerous, though, is that our culture today is is all about this. And as it seeps its way into the church, it puffs up men and women in pride. And it sets people against one another. This type of pride goes before the fall. And Paul's point is that such conceit, such an inflated view of self, is going to dismantle and diminish biblical unity. It's not that prideful people can't have unity. It's just that the only unity they seek is centered on themselves. It's like they are the sun. You can be a planet. You can be a moon revolving around them, but there's just no room for another star. So you either serve their interests or get lost. This type of self-importance or self-centeredness, it really is the death knell to meaningful unity. So both of these heart attitudes must be denied. None of your actions must stem from these. See that key word in verse 3. 
Nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. There's no exceptions here. Like we've already seen, not even good deeds should be done from motives of selfish ambition. It's like baking a cake using rotten eggs. It's going to spoil the whole thing. And such selfishness has a way of souring even your good deeds. So first, you have to be aware of these. You have to constantly check your motives. Why do you do what you do in the church, in the home, at work? Especially, though, considering the context of the local church, why are you here this morning? Why do you come? Why do you serve? Is it to gain something? Are are you in it for yourself? Is there some secret selfish motive underlying why you do things? You're trying to build a name for yourself. You're trying to get recognized. You're trying to be valued and have some prestige. Whatever it might be, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. We're not here to serve our interests or to make a name for ourselves, to build our kingdom. We're here entirely for the Lord, Lord's interests, to do his work, to proclaim his name, to expand his kingdom. If you're going to do that, like he said, you want to follow him, well, first things first, deny yourself. If anyone wants to follow me, he must first deny himself, pick up his cross daily. You have to deny that, that self uh, first and foremost. Take this to heart. This goes hand in hand with number two, which is humble self. Humble self. And you're rounding out verse three. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This obviously is a corollary to denying self. It takes great humility to deny self. Where you realize that the universe does not revolve around you. In the ancient world, humility was not a virtue. It was a major vice. It was seen as a a bad thing. Humility was frowned upon. It's a sign of weakness. Instead, blatant, overt pride was glorified. Sadly, I think such times have returned. Those who boast get ahead. Humility, I mean, that's for the weak and the poor who have nothing to boast about. But in reality, we all know that, that nobody has anything to boast about. This phrase, humility of mind, it's it's just one word in the Greek. It speaks of a lowliness of mind. It's the opposite of empty conceits, where you esteem yourself as small, which is all about having an accurate view of self. The world right now, I would say, has the highest view of self in human history. Right? Our, Our culture tells you that you are so important, you can define your own reality, You can choose your own gender. You can speak your own truth. But scripture says the opposite. I mean, first, you owe your very life to God. Every breath you breathe is borrowed. Every advantage you have is from him. You owe God everything. It might be true. You might be richer and smarter and healthier than the person next to you. But even that you owe to God's common grace. Just like Paul questions in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, they were rife with division. He says, who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? 
Really, all such boasting is eliminated when you see yourself under God. You've been created by God. Everything you have is by common grace. Who do you think you are? It's only when you see God for who he is, big, sovereign, the the creator, the provider, and you see yourself for who you really are, just a creature, meek, before the Lord, that you'll get this. And this is just magnified a hundredfold when, when you consider salvation. Because not only do we owe our, our physical lives to the Lord, we owe our spiritual lives to the Lord. Because before, you and I were spiritually dead. We're lost in our sins. We're by nature children of wrath. But God in his mercy sent his own son, Christ, to die on the cross, rise from the dead, to save us, to forgive us. And to be saved from the wrath to come, you must look upon this Savior by faith. But even that faith, you can't boast. All of it comes by God's saving grace. This is why Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, speaking of God, he says, By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Think about that. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So let him who boasts... Boast in the Lord. I mean, if you're going to boast, go ahead. Just make sure it's in the Lord. Do you know Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you don't, you need to humble yourself, look upon him, repent, and believe. He can forgive you and wash you and cleanse you and save you. But this salvation should absolutely floor you in humility because you should know and recognize We don't deserve this grace gift. We certainly don't earn it. This is all by God's grace. We were just guilty convicts on spiritual death row. But we we were redeemed at a price. We were set free by King Jesus. And that should have the effect of deflating a puffed up ego. I mean, how can you, knowing salvation by grace, how, how can you really think you're better than anyone else? And if you are, it's just by grace. It's just by God's common or saving grace. Never forget James 4, verse 6. God is opposed to the proud. He loves to put down the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And this humility of mind, verse 3, or uh, verse 4. You must have this humility of mind all the time. Actually, verse 3. This, this, we need to fix our minds with this humility. And only when you do, can you do what Paul says next. He says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. The issue here is not worth. He's not establishing a pecking order where you are worth less than someone else. It's really just speaking of caring for others as better. He clarifies what he means in verse 4, which is not a new sentence. It's all about putting the needs of others ahead of your own. Just like Romans 12, 10 tells us, it says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And we're called to apply this to everybody, not just the intelligent or the rich, the powerful, but the meek, the poor, the sinner. In a sense, it's easy to treat the billionaire or the celebrity as more important than yourselves. Culturally, that they are, at least according to our world. And they have a type of clout and power. But but what about the field worker or the stay-at-home mom or 
the handicapped person, that elderly couple, your enemy. And just imagine a church or a friendship or marriage where both parties genuinely treated the other as more important than themselves. Imagine a relationship without selfishness where each looked out for the needs of the other ahead of their own. If that actually happened, if such a relationship actually existed, I mean, how would there be conflict? Where would conflict ever come from in such a relationship? The only conflict would be over who gets to serve who. Like two people going out to dinner and they're fighting over who gets to pay the bill. I'll take that type of conflict. If that's all it is, I'll settle for that. But you get the point. You can see how this practice of treating others as more important than yourself is central to unity, especially in the church. This is all about selfishness versus selflessness. Christ showed us the way pretty clearly. But if we actually started doing this, seeking the needs and interests of others ahead of our own, how could greater unity not be the result? This is hard for you to humble yourself. Well, first, let me just warn you that you know, God has a way of humbling those who walk in pride. He makes it his business. You don't want that. Even as a believer, like Paul affirmed with these believers in Philippians 4, that, that they are, their names are written in the book of life. They're believers, but uh, some discipline might be involved for those walking in pride. Far better, though, as James 4.10 says, to humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. Practically speaking, you do that by seeing God and, and seeing your sin. You need to get back into the scriptures first. See who God is. Be reminded of, of the God you serve. See him as creator and sustainer, a judge, king. See his holiness and his justice next to his mercy and his love. And meanwhile, you take a look at yourself through the lens of scripture. You see your own sin. You become poor in spirit where you recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God. You take full stock of all of your sin debt, which Christ nailed to the cross, by the way. I mean, if the Holy Spirit is in you, these truths will humble you as you fill your mind with them. And then you're going to realize that it's not about you. This life is not about you. The church is not about you. It's all about Christ Jesus. We're here for his glory. We exist for his glory. We're, we're about his business, his work, his name. And the power of the church comes when all of us are just sold out to this. We're divested of ego and self-will. And we're just, we're all about the Lord's business. That's it. And if you could just deny yourself and then humble yourself, you'd be well on your way. Let's add one more pursuit, though, to finish up. Thirdly, uh, serve others. Deny self, humble self, serve others. I told you it's not complicated, but adding verse 4. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, only after you deny yourself and humble yourself, can you truly serve others from a right heart? And this verse expresses the servant's mindset that was pictured back in verse 2. This is the pursuit of that picture. And 
as a reminder that the picture of the church's unity is this, this single-mindedness and purpose. It's not that we're all robots, we lose our individuality. No, it's just that we, say, we share the same mindset and the same purpose. Our mindset is that of Christ. It's a servant's mindset. Uh, we're not kings and rulers. We are servants and slaves. We serve him and his purposes. We believe with Christ it's better to serve than to be served. That's how we follow him. Remember that one time when the disciples were with Jesus, they were on their way to Jerusalem when, where he was going to be crucified, but they're too busy arguing among themselves which one of them is the greatest. Remember that? Where'd that come from? It came from their selfish ambition, their vain glory, their pride. What was the result? It divided them. They started bickering and fighting against one another. What did Christ say in response? Matthew 20, 26. He says, it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus came first. And he served us first. And now he tells us to follow him by doing what he did, serving others. You see how Paul puts it? He says, look out for the interests of others. The word he uses for look is the word from which we get our word scope. It means to fix your eye on something. And the Lord wants us to follow him practically by fixing our sight on serving one another. Your approach to the church should be to serve, not to be served. And so is that you? Does that describe how you relate to the church, even this local church? Do you find that you're, you're a self-focused Christian or an others-focused Christian? And I can test you on that. Just ask yourself, even this morning, what, what thoughts captured your mind? Were you most concerned about your appearance, your hair, your makeup, your clothes? Were you already thinking about all the things you wanted to do after church? Was your mind set on something you hoped to gain, to get out of the morning? Or were you thinking about others? Were you praying in advance for the service? Were you thinking about that one person you want to make sure you talk to after to encourage? Were you gearing up to serve? And I'll tell you, if you, if you ever feel disconnected from the church body, just try putting into practice this servant's mindset. You just come to serve, not to be served. You will watch as the Lord will knit your heart to the, those people around you and vice versa. Nothing unifies like this type of selfless service. And it leads to a greater joy. You know, back in verse 4, Paul says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We all have personal interests. You've got your wants, your desires. These are not inherently sinful or wrong all the time. But part of the point he's making is that, look, you, you already look out for yourself enough. It's like the command, love your neighbor as yourself. Like you already love yourself plenty. Just give some of that to others and you're on your way. 
Just start looking out for the interests of others, and you'll see unity result. In fact, why don't you at times go so far as putting the needs of others ahead of your own, where you prefer them? I mean, think of Christ. Of all people, Christ was entirely entitled to be served. By his divine nature, even by his human birthright, everyone should be serving him. And they will. But he came first to serve us. Jesus knew this would please his father. And now so it goes for us. God is pleased when, when we, his children, uh, serve one another in love. Romans 15.1 says, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. And just as a quick aside, can I mention how relevant this teaching is on marriage? I know the ultimate object of what Paul says here is the church, but I use these verses all the time. This is like marriage counseling 101 in addition. If you and your spouse would just exhibit these pursuits, you would see a lot more peace in your marriage. God designed marriage to be a relationship of unity. You want to talk unity, you also look at marriage. This is a one flesh union where two very different people come together as one. That is, seems hard and otherwise impossible. How, how could that ever work? The only way is this way where both people are coming together not to pursue and and demand their selfish interests, but to seek the Lord's interests and that of the other. I mean, husbands, does not God already call you to lay down yourself and serve your wife? You're, You're called to die to selfish interests and serve her needs above your own directly in Scripture. Live with her in an understanding way. And wives, you're called to follow your husband's lead that requires a certain humility, do that with joy. If only both of you would truly root out the selfishness in your hearts and strive, I mean really strive to meet the needs of the others. And of course, we're assuming righteous needs, that which is good. But almost like a competition, you you would see a lot of conflict vanish. In marriage, there's no such thing as compatibility. It's a great myth. You and your spouse are by no means compatible because you're both sinners. You both have selfish interests. I do. My wife does. There's no chance that your selfish interests and your spouse's selfish interests will align all of the time. Like 24-7, it will never happen. There will be a time when what you want comes into conflict with what they want. And when that time comes, who will budge? So often we just go the way of the world. We want what we want, and we're going to get it by demanding, by manipulating, by name-calling, by yelling, by silent treatment, by withdrawal, whatever. Doing whatever it takes to, to force the other to submit to our will. And meanwhile, your spouse is doing the same thing, and so the, the net result of this pride is just division. And to make it worse, neither spouse actually gets their needs met. They're both just frustrated and divided. But I want you to consider the wisdom and the beauty of the Lord's way. Just what if you had a husband and wife who, who truly just 
crucified their own selfish interests or just their desires. Even if they're righteous, they just lay down their desires. And they just concern themselves with only seeking the good and the need of their spouse. How can I serve you? How can I give you what you want, what you need? What, What can I do for you? I know this sounds crazy. We are all selfish creatures in the flesh. But if you can do this or pursue this or strive for this, for one, this couple would not be pulled apart. They'd be drawn together because, again, nothing unifies like this selfless service. And two, both of their desires would actually be met, not by taking, but by giving and receiving, a mutual selfless giving and receiving. Deny self, humble self, serve others. This is the way of the Lord for unity in the family. This is the way of the Lord for unity in the church. This is that the practical pursuit of unity. You know, to wrap it up, let me tell you a story. A long time ago, there, there's a group of men, you might say the whole earth, they just gathered together and they were one body. They were truly unified. And as they gathered together, they reflected on their greatness. And so they decided to to build a city and a tower, the top of which would reach the heavens. They were making a monument for themselves, an everlasting monument to the greatness of their name. And as they started gathering and building, they were doing it. They, They would have accomplished this goal. They would have made this monument. But God came down and visited these men at a place called Babel. And God said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. Now, nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. God himself observed that when mankind was united, nothing's impossible for them to achieve. This is obviously the the account of the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. The problem here is that mankind was united, not for good, but for evil, not to make God's name great, but to make his own name great. And so God scattered man across the earth and confused their languages. In judgment, God divided humanity. But a principle can be found in the Babel account, namely that that unity makes great accomplishments possible. Disunity makes great accomplishments impossible. Ever since that day, the sea of humanity has been divided, mostly mostly along ethnic lines, where if you you look different, if you speak different, if you come from somewhere different, we have reason to divide. But I hope you realize what God is doing with this thing called the church. In the church, God is, in a very real way, reversing the scattering that took place at Babel. He's gathering together the redeemed from all the nations into one body, the church. And it's no surprise that when the Holy Spirit first came in Acts 2 and the church began, that the first sign was speaking in tongues. They could all actually understand one another again. It was a reversal of Babel, a preview of the kingdom. The difference, though, is that this church is unified no longer to make man's name great, but the Lord's. Our purpose for coming together is to exalt and magnify God's name because he's redeemed us. I mean, we were lost and dead and divided. We were at enmity with God and one another. 
But God, through the Spirit, turned us around. He brought us together. And now God is pleased to see the church unified so that it might do the impossible. He has big plans for this church. It's otherwise impossible. But by unity, it can be done. He wants us uh, as one body to pursue the greatest good, which is the spread of his gospel, the magnification of Christ's name, the, the building up of the body in love. This is the church's mission and purpose. It cannot be achieved without unity. And so now it's part of our work to pursue this unity with one another. This is the way of the Lord. And when I say way of the Lord, I mean it. I'm going to let it not escape our notice that this passage on unity in Philippians 2 is what gives rise to the greatest passage in Scripture on the incarnation. Normally I think of Philippians 2 as like the Mount Everest of the incarnation of Christ. But that stems from verses 3 and 4. Look at verse 5 of Philippians 2. He says right after, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? What we just read in verses 3 and 4. This humble single-mindedness. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We recall here, Jesus came first. He humbled himself first. He served us first because he knew otherwise we'd, we'd have no chance. We would forever be lost and divided and condemned. But he leads us in a better way. He died to pay for our sins, to gather us, regather us into one people again. He unites us to himself. And by the Holy Spirit, he unites us to one another. We have this supernatural basis of unity, but it's still hard to live because we're sinful. We have the flesh. We're selfish. You must deny self. You must humble self, but just look to Christ. He was gentle and humble of heart. Remember, he humbled himself first. He served you first. And now it's time to follow his lead. We need to remember these things always. We need to implement these truths and pursue this unity in Christ. Once again, there's so many secondary issues that threaten to divide us today. And it's fair to contend over these issues. But we can't let tribal infighting blind us to the real threats we face in the culture and our real mission to reach this world. We have to just stay aligned in Christ our head and in our mission to serve him. You've seen those LED flashlights. It's like like a hundred little LEDs all pointed the same direction. It makes a super bright light. If you take those hundred LEDs, you point them all in different directions, you now have a worthless flashlight, right? This power comes from its alignment. And so it goes for the church. The power to grow, the power to witness comes from our alignment. And so may we be aligned in Christ, aligned in love, aligned in service, aligned in purpose, and may we here as this church fulfill the Lord's great prayer for his future church when he prayed in John 17, 21. He said to the Father that they may all be one, 
even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Let's testify as a monument to the world of the greatness of Christ's name by our oneness. Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven, that is our prayer and that's our desire, that we would come together as the church universal and as a local church for your greatness and for the glory of your name. We all know it's in us, the selfishness, the desire to be magnified, to sit on the throne, to be praised, to be served individually, corporately. It's just residual within us, Lord. Uh, Part of our sinful flesh. And first, we thank you again for sending Christ to die for even that sin, the sin of vainglory and pride. We need that. We need the Savior who washes away all of our sin. We, We thank you for that. Help us now to see us rightly, to see Christ as the Lord and Savior, the the King of kings, the God of glory, and, and to live to exalt him. In that, we find our greatest fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. But I pray you truly convict us individually and corporately to live for him and for his name, to not be so busy seeking our own selfish interests, but from our spouse to our kids, to our local church, to, to really give ourselves over to serving others, to to meeting the the righteous needs of others, dying to self. We know what you promise is true. We we also see the flip side, that when we actually come together and do this, we are a a powerful, united, joy-filled church who can do much, who can do the impossible to reach this world for your glory. That's our aim. We trust your will to bring it about, but move in us, convict us to take these truths to heart. Just humble us, Lord. We need humility and to achieve what you've bought for us. And so be with us in that regard. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.